The following is a presentation of Gallery Church Downtown, part of a family of neighborhood churches seeking to display God's greatness to the world. For more information, please visit gcbdowntown.com. Good morning, family, again. Um, we're reading from 1 Corinthians 13, 1 through 13, and that's on page 1152 in the Bibles. If I speak in the tongues of men or of angels, but do not have love, I'm only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship that I may boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. But where there are prophecies, they will cease. Where there are tongues, they will be stilled. Where there is knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when completeness comes, what is in part disappears. When I was a child, I talked like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put the ways of childhood behind me. For now we see only a reflection as in a mirror. Then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. Now these three remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. Amen. Um, but I don't know if many of you that are here um, have been journeying with us um, through this fall season, and you were present with us in the month of September. And others of you are family, and you may not be aware of what I'm about ready to reference, but we went through some hard topics, like ways that we can continue to seek Jesus in our world today. And in the midst of that, um, I said a lot of times as a pastor, I'm always asked the question, is, you know, if you're listening online, I'm doing the quotation thing with my fingers, but is a sin? You know, is this, if I, you know, is this a sin? I get that asked a lot as a pastor. But during the month of September, I said, well, why don't we come up with a, a different question? Um, and rather than saying, is this activity a sin, is to say, if I continue to do this activity, is it making me more into the image of Jesus? And so with that, it really did set a foundation for this Advent time because we decided to entitle this Advent journey for our church family with the word embody. And my favorite definition of the word embody is actually not the first line that comes up when you do a definition search for embody. It's actually the third line that comes up. And it says this, to provide with a physical form. That's the church. So everything about why we gather in this space is to provide a physical form to Jesus Christ. Now, this particular Sunday is going to be a short version of what we're going to be talking about the first three weeks in January. So we're kind of just laying a little teaser Sunday in here at the end of Advent, but we're going to go into January and build out on this. That way I can keep today short and us be moved together. But I just want to say this to us. If you and I are the temple of the living God, right? That's what the scriptures tell us. 
the Holy Spirit of God is no longer tied to a building or to a temporary tent. You and I are the temple of the living God. This morning, because we are sitting here together, there is an increased presence of the Holy God in here this morning. Okay, I just want you to understand, when we get together on Sunday mornings, it's not for us to just be taught. It's not just for us to sing, but it is to be in a space where there is an incredible presence, an embodiment of the Spirit of the living God. And so today, this Advent word is love. And I love the fact that the New Testament reading came from the disciple John. Because John, which I think is interesting in his gospel, refers to himself as the beloved disciple. Now that's some strong self-esteem, right? And some of you are like, man, I need to grow in my self-esteem. Read the gospel of John and just imagine yourself standing in front of the mirror and saying, I am a beloved child of God, right? I am not just a beloved, I am the beloved child of God, right? So this sense that you have incredible worth or value in Jesus Christ. John knew it because he leaned against the chest of Jesus. He got a chance to travel with Jesus, eat with Jesus, see miracles provided by Jesus. He even was placed in dangerous situations at the words of Jesus. And so John knew who Jesus was in a way that I think all of us in here are are desiring. And he said in one word, what was the one word description in his first letter to the early church as an old man writing to the early church? What was the one word he used to describe Jesus? I have a hint. It's our Advent candle today. Love. First John 4, 8. Is, it's like, look, if you have anything, any opportunity to experience this, you will know God because God is love. And so he leaned against the chest of Jesus and his definition of that relationship, his definition of how he felt, his definition of the way that he was embraced was the word love. And so John, I think, is an expert. And listen to what he said in his gospel account uh, uh, as a quote of what Jesus said. I give you a new commandment that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also should love one another. By this, everyone will know that you're my disciples as if you love one another. Now, I probably could just say meditate on that in Jesus' name. Now go and enjoy your Christmas. But let's just admit this. It's difficult. Some of you are going to see family members that you don't see, but maybe once or twice a year. And you're going to be like, I don't want to love them. Or others you are going to be going, are, are, are actually here this Sunday, not because you're going to see your family, but you desire to be with them and you've got to go to work. And you're going to walk in to see the boss that didn't let you have Christmas Eve and Christmas Day off. I don't want to love them. But what is the defining characteristic of those of us that claim to be the temple of the living God? If the Holy Spirit of the living God was to be with us. So here's the question. I think the question I posed to us in September is a good question. If I continue to do this activity, does it make me out to embody or to be a living picture of Jesus Christ? But for the sake of Advent, I want to kind of shift it a little bit, which is really more the title of today's teaching. What does love require of us? So if you're sitting in a situation the next couple of days, like you have to go to work, what does love require of you? If you're with your family, what does love require of you? If you are left here alone, what does love require of you? 
And so Advent is a reminder to us about what love requires of us. Let me share this. I was doing some reading this past week while I was on vacation, and I usually love to take some time to get up early and read um, before my family gets to be around because I, I, I have a hard time multitasking, and my wife would say amen to that. Um, uh, yeah, I just, I'm going to leave that alone because the sermon needs to be short. Um, but um, I came across a story. I was reading a lot about the first century believers because I want us to be like them. I mean, what they had was contagious. People were drawn to them. But yet they had every persecution known to man going on at the same time. And so as I've been reading, I came across a story from the first century um, of the first century Christians. They had developed the first, what I found to be a great foster care system. How many of you have a heart for children? How many of you would love to see there not need to be any children in foster care? Right? Okay? At least we all agree to that. I mean, I would love for there not to need to be a foster care system because every children was in a loving home. But the first century Christians that were living in the Roman Empire, that first century, found out that Rome had no policy on, um, like, in, in, was that infant, infant side, where they can, like, just kill children or leave children neglected, and, and they could, and there was no guilt and shame in this. The case in point, Emperor Claudius was famous because one of his wives, he believed, um, had conceived in a a relationship from a freed slave, and so he made her abandon the daughter in a place outside of the city. The exposure is what it was called. It was called in the Roman or an English translation is you can expose the child. It wasn't technically considered murder because the child had a chance to survive. And so a family without guilt, a parent without guilt, can say, well, I just exposed my child. And if fate has it, that child will be taken care of. But if fate doesn't have my child, then it will die. But it's not murder because the child has a chance. Parents could be guiltless. And I was reading through the stories of all of this, how babies were left to starve, freeze, even be eaten by wild animals. And I just started to cry as I was sitting there watching the sun come up because I'm sitting there thinking, this just has to grieve the heart of God because you and I do what? We bear the image of God in this world from birth. So all these little children that are, were, were created in the image of God are being abandoned to these horrific practices. And these babies were abandoned for a varied amount of reasons, not just from the absence of, of um, a committed in marriage, but they could have been birth defects or a family could have been poor and not wanted another mouth to feed. It was whatever they wanted. They could just say, I just, I'm going to expose this child into the world. What I began to find was is that the early Christians rejected this way of living. And so they made daily trips to the riverbanks where babies were commonly left. They made daily trips to the outer edges of the city. They would walk the tree lines where families would leave children, and they knew the spaces where these babies were going to be left, and they would bring them in. And so here's my question to us today. Why would the early church respond to this? Why would they go to these places and take these children that were not their own into their own house? Rescuing abandoned babies is not commanded in the Old Testament. Rescuing abandoned babies is not commanded anywhere in the New Testament. 
Rescuing abandoned babies to all of us would be like, okay, it makes sense that you would do this. But there's no command in Scripture to go do those things. But what I begin to find is that they would put their own family in jeopardy because in the first century, you and I don't maybe not fully understand first century history, it was expensive. Taxes were incredibly high. Food was, scar- was scarce, especially if there were wars going on. Homes were incredibly small, and many people were working land that used to be in their family, but now it's not because it was taken from them, and they were now enslaved on that land. And so why would you want to bring in more responsibility when you could say, well, my Jewish scriptures don't command it. I don't have anything in any early church writings that say that I have to go do this. Paul hasn't sent me a letter saying, take in all the abandoned children. We don't have it written anywhere in the New Testament. But yet... I found myself, as I was looking at this, the first century Jesus followers were convinced that love required it. Long before chapters and verses ever existed, the expression of the early church changed the Roman Empire. By the year, the A.D. 318, Emperor Constantine declared this type of living a crime. And that said that babies could no longer be left. It was murder. And that was because of the ways that the Christians embraced this. In the last 10, almost 11 years that I've lived in the city of Baltimore, certain things that I have valued in my faith have kind of changed over the years. Uh, In the 15 years prior, things that I taught in Cincinnati, things I taught in Charlotte, things I taught in Atlanta, now things I've taught in Baltimore, there are things that I wish I could go back and reteach. There's things that I could wish that I could go back and redo, and it's not because I think I was intent on doing anything wrong. I kind of hope that it's me maturing in my faith and me growing up in the things that I've become more aware of. But the one thing over the last 25 years that I think I've begun to desire a little bit more is to look like Jesus. And as I've been walking through that and learning to ask myself a different set of questions, not just saying, is this right or wrong, because that's what my parents taught me. They always were teaching me things like, is that a sin? Because you don't want to do sin, right? But I never really learned how to begin to say anything about, well, the goal in life isn't to not sin. My goal in my life is to look like Jesus. And so as I begin to walk through this, the goal for me with you is, what does it look like for our church to be known for our love? What does it look like for us to actually begin to think that we could grow up and look more like Jesus? So in the year 2019, we're going to have a chance to look at some of the things that I feel like the Lord has been doing in and through me that then impacts us as a church. Because as the image of God grows in us, I just want you guys to know, I am aware that I don't always show love. And it breaks my heart. It doesn't always break my heart in the moment when I'm stuck in something other than love. Right? I wish I could catch it earlier. Sometimes my family has to call an intervention, right? Because there's a brokenness in me that is now hurting the spiritual journey, the image of Jesus in our family as a result of who I am when I'm not functioning like Christ. But the thing that that drew me to 1 Corinthians 13 is that I believe Paul noticed it in himself as well. So here's a man that gave us nearly half of our New Testament. And he's writing to us this empowered chapter on the love of God and how it's expressed. But even Paul, with all of his incredible insights and all the crazy words and things we go back to, like in the book of Romans, we kind of wrestle with, like, what did Paul really mean by all of this? 
with all of his wisdom, with all of his experience, with the fact that he had one-on-one meeting with Jesus. All right, I want you guys to hear this. The man who wrote 1 Corinthians 13 had a face-to-face encounter with Jesus, which is something that all of us in here would love to have. And so if there is anybody that should be able to speak with authority on what looking like Jesus should look like, Paul would be one of them because he actually had a chance to see him. But listen to what he says in verse 9. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part, but when completeness comes, what is in part disappears. Apparently, completeness had not even arrived to Paul yet. Can I remind you that he wrote half of our New Testament? And he was even saying about himself that completeness had not Arrive, verse 12, listen to this. For now we see only a reflection as in a mirror. Then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. To me, that's encouraging. Because the one that I go to to read about the early life of the church is saying to me that he only knew part. So the expectation for me as a pastor isn't that I have to know everything. And the expectation for you is that you don't have to know everything. But you have to be a steward of the part you know. You have to be willing to put to practice, to embody, to become a physical expression of what it is that you know, because that's the expectation of me. And let me remind you, Paul had face-to-face encounters with not only Jesus, but he had face-to-face encounters with Peter, with John, with Jesus' brother James, and had a chance to interact with them. And his response to the early church, after meeting with Jesus, after meeting with these other writers of our New Testament and other people that had been stepped and stepped with Jesus, he's saying to us, the greatest of all things is love. So what you do know, let's just think about it. What do you know? And on our best day, what we know is only part. The day that you're most confident in your faith going into an argument, the day you're most confident in your day that your peace that passes all understanding in you, you know in part. But I think that the statements that I just read to you out of 1 Corinthians 9 and 1 Corinthians 12 about this partness that he knew and that the completeness would come, do you see in the chapter what it's wedged in between? This is a chapter talking about the characteristics of love, and he pauses for a minute to say, I only know part. I don't know fully. I'm like, I'm looking in a mirror. But let me show you what it's framed around. Let's start in verse 8. Love never fails, but where there are prophecies, they will cease. Where there are tongues, they will be stilled. Where there is knowledge, it will pass away. And then verse 13, the other side of this frame. And now these three remain, faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of these is love. So let me tell you what I think Paul is saying in a very clear and concise way as I try to just wrap this up so we can, um, you know, love and embrace the small children around us and enjoy each other just for a little bit more. But this is what I think is clear. We know what we know, but we also must see that we only know a little. We don't know everything. So this is what Paul is saying. I am confident in what I know because love never fails. Love hopes. It provides. I've seen it. I'm confident in that. 
but there are things that I don't see. He's saying what you see, he says, we see what we see. Like you and I can have a testimony of what we see. But what we see, we must realize that we don't see everything. We don't see everything clearly. So yes, we can acknowledge that there's things that we see. But we can't go around acting like as we see everything. Because we don't see everything. And once we learn all that we can learn, you and I still need to know that there is more that we can learn. I don't care how old you are. The, the, the wealthiest by character, I'm not thinking about finances, the wealthiest senior adults that I've ever been around are those that never act like as if they've learned at all. They have a posture with you. Let me share with you my life. Let me share with you what I've seen. I haven't seen everything but I've seen something, and many of you know some adults right now. I lost three of them in this last year. Three men in my life that are over the age of 70 that are already seeing Jesus face to face. And you know what I grieve? I grieve them sitting with me and sharing with me what they've seen. But I appreciate the humility of them acknowledging what they hadn't seen. But yet all three of them excelled in one thing. And can you imagine what it was? Love. There's one thing that should transcend what we know. There's one thing that should transcend the limits of our insight, the limits of our expectation, and what is that? Love. Love fills in the gaps. Love reduces the friction created by our limited insight. Love works in spite of the limitations imposed on us by the era in which we live in. I want you guys to let that set on you just for a moment. In the first century, it was legal to just expose a child. That's just one glimpse of the darkness of the early church, why they waited for the return of Jesus Christ. They literally thought that they would see Jesus face again before they died. Like I really do think when John was writing Revelation that he really thought he was going to see Jesus in person before he ever died because Jesus says, I'm coming back. And he, I think he took it personally, right? Like any of us would. And even though decades had gone by, I think he's still thinking his life, like, I'm, okay, I'm getting old now, Jesus, you better speed it up, right? But yet what I begin to find is, is that they realized that love worked in their generation, love works in ours. There is so much that we don't know, and there's so much that you and I don't understand. Paul had those same things. And my ignorance does put limitations on me. I just say that to you. But is that something all of us can say? Because if my ignorance puts limitations on me, what do you think ignorance does to you? It puts limitations on all of us. But ignorance does not impede my or your capacity to put others first. No matter what situation I'm in, I could be angry, I could be hurt, I could feel abused, I could feel whatever, whatever emotion we possibly could carry into this room. But if you and I say to each other, what does love require of me? I think you and I can have a chance to excel no matter what circumstances we're placed in. Because love never fails. It wasn't enough for the first century church just to have knowledge. 
it wasn't enough for them just to try to walk through the darkness. It's also not enough for us just to gather as church in our generation. It's not just enough for us to gain knowledge in our culture and in what we're facing today in and across the world. Love needs to be on display for you and I, which during this Advent season, one of the things I said in the first week is that we are what kind of people? Between people. We are between the departure of Jesus from his first coming and the return of Jesus in his second coming. So we're in the gap between all the promises that have been fulfilled and those that have not yet been fulfilled. And, and the early church viewed that period of time as a darkness that they would have to navigate. Waiting for the morning star is how it was even described in one place. But in the process of the darkness, the one thing that they knew they needed to excel at until Jesus returned was to do what? To love. So what do we know with 100% clarity that we should do before Jesus returns? Love. Let's pray. Father, I am thankful for the confidence in this one thing. I am thankful that we know that at the end of every day, in the midst of every circumstance, that, you, that, that we can excel at love. Father, thank you for making that clear to us before you left. Thank you for the examples of people in the early church that showed us what love looked like in the midst of a dark era in human history. Father, we want to excel in love. We want to shine brightly like Christ and like many of the people in the early church in our generation. Father, I have many questions, and I know that the people in this room have many questions. But Father, I am thankful that you've given us confidence in the fact that we have faith, that we have hope, and we have love. And so, Father, would you help us to excel, not just in faith and hope, but to excel in the ways that we love each other. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.